This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily, guiding you through the abject horror of Great Britain on the business end of 2020. My name is Ian Dunt. I'm the editor of politics.co.uk and the author of How to Be a Liberal. And I'm joined today by Tara Jane O'Reilly, a writer, campaigner and all-round political operative. Tara co-founded Women in Westminster, which supports women in politics, campaigns on bullying and sexual harassment in Westminster, has worked on Sadiq Khan's campaign to become London mayor and Keir Starmer's campaign to become Labour leader, making her one of the last remaining examples of a near-extinct species, left-wingers who win. But before all that, she worked on a burrito truck. So can we start with the most important thing that I think we're going to discuss, um, which is that the, the Brits, they're sort of all right. They've learned how to use chopsticks, but they cannot, for the fucking life of them, make a burrito. So can you just do like a, a, a definitive <laughs> course in how you actually wrap a burrito? Oh my God, it stresses me out so much when I see people trying to roll burritos and I've had to like step in or my friends have had to hold me back in restaurants because I'm like, no, what are you doing? Can you do the, can you do the definitive wrapping instruction for people? Oh, I really do feel yes. that there's a moral urgency to this question. So, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm physically imagining there's a burrito in front of me at the same time. <laughs> so, the filling goes right in the middle. You bring the back... <laughs> can't believe I'm doing this the back bit of the tortilla forward <laughs> on top of the filling and then you just kind of touch the filling um and then you bring the two sides in and then you roll I mean that's I'm a bit deflated now because that's not even my technique <laughs> I put in the sides and then the back and then the front but you're oh saying God, no. back sides front yep that's how we do it. Right. Moving on. I would try and find a segue between that and Keir Starmer's <laughs> Labour leadership, but I think, fuck it, I, I don't need to do that. Um, Keir Starmer's leader, leadership campaign all mm. seemed quite genteel and, and very polite and amicable. And, and you know, people like me were like, well, let's have a bit more of it. They should be having more of a fight. And they yeah. weren't. And then now that he's leader, the hard left seems to be kicking off against him quite hard. What, what's going on? Why didn't it happen earlier? I think I think most people were tired um, after the general election, and and I, I mean, and that was the case for all of us who were working on Keir's campaign. Like we were all bloody knackered, you know. It was the same for whatever faction you're from. Um, but I, I don't know. I think it's a mix of kind of people feeling as though, um, you know, what is Keir standing for? I think people are struggling to work out what that is. Um, but then at the same time, you know, we're all stuck at home and. You know, it's bloody coronavirus season. No usual rules apply, and so um, it's quite it's quite easy to stick it on your leader. And change is always hard, and change is always really hard in, in politics, and especially with the Labour Party. We just always, always make things so much more difficult than you know it needs to be. Are they really? Are they really turning against him, or is it just does it does that wing seem overrepresented because of you know Twitter? It's not the real world, and, and blah blah blah. I think you know a lot of the issue-based arguments um, that people make are, are valid and are representative of people, you know, beyond Twitter. Because I, I hear it among my friends, among, among my working class friends, my 
BME friends, you know, why why didn't Keir say enough on this and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But um, I think I think it's a mix of that and a mix of you know people just adjusting to the fact that the Corbyn era has you know ended, um, and people are just emotional. Um, but yeah, it's um, it is strange and it is strange just seeing it all play out on Twitter because you don't have the usual kind of um, parts of politics that you normally have, like walking around um, Westminster or going to political events or Labour Party conferences cancelled. And so all the kind of ways of, you know, engaging with one another, it all basically happens now on Twitter. And Twitter is, you know, a horrible place at the best of times. So, <laughs> <it's-> <laughs> um, so what are your expectations for Sadiq Khan's sort of London mayoral campaign next year? I mean, his, his opponent, um, Sean Bailey, does seem to be sort of uh, quite uniquely inept. Yeah, when I think Sadiq will win. Um, I mean, he bloody better. <laughs> um, he can't not, please, no. Um, yeah, every time I see Sean Bailey, you know, saying something in in the press or on Twitter, especially, I just, yeah, uh, it's, it stresses me out. It stresses me out. Um, I don't really know what he stands for. It, it's sort of, it's almost a bit troubling, isn't it, in terms of... Um how the London politics plays out because it's, there are like quite a lot of criticisms you could easily make of Sadiq Khan on policy terms, but it doesn't really seem like any of that debate or scrutiny is going to happen just because his, his opponent just, just seems to be so hapless. Yeah, it, it is really strange. It, it's, it's really strange. It doesn't really feel like there is um, that kind of, you know, head to head part of politics there. Um mm. And then, you know, we were supposed to have the election this year and, and didn't. And so it's added a whole, we've got a whole other year of <laughs> versus Sean Bailey. Um, can you run us through your, how you got into politics? I mean, you, you went, you started getting into Westminster very, very young. Weren't you 21 when you first started? Yeah, I was a baby. I was a baby. <laughs> <laughs> so young and naive. <laughs> I was um, speaking to one of my friends yesterday who reminded me of one of, one of my first few days working for Steve. Someone had said, uh, make sure you tune in to World at One um, for for some kind of interview that was happening. And I remember just turning around and being like, when is it? Like, when's World at One? Like, what time is that on? And <laughs> thinking back to that now, like, I had no idea what I was walking into. No mm. idea. didn't know a damn thing. But, um, yeah, I fell into politics. I'd kind of um, I'd volunteered uh, for years and years and years whilst um, working in a restaurant and rolling my burritos worked at an international development charity for six months and then applied for a job on Sadiq's campaign and then I haven't been able to escape politics ever since and it's been four and a half years. You um you wrote a feature a few months back in Elle magazine. Yeah. Um talking about your experiences of sort of sexual harassment in Westminster and those of other people that that you knew. Can you can you walk us because I think that's probably quite eye opening for mm. For many people sort of outside of the estate can you walk us through the kinds of things that we're talking about that, that young women face when they're working in that environment yeah it, it really ranges so it can be from like there's the, the bullying aspect of it which isn't necessarily always separate to the sexual harassment aspect but the mm. bullying whether that's you know, aggressive emails aggressive texts being shouted at in in a way that isn't you know um appropriate um and then there's the like even now during lockdown, I've had um, staffers calling me crying because of you know the excessive demands that their MP is putting on them. So even with lockdown, it hasn't really changed. Um, and then on the sexual harassment front, um, it ranges from very low level kind of um, 
you know, comments on your appearance and, you know, a, a little hand on your back at a bar or at one of the many drinks receptions that you kind of have to go to because networking is key in politics mm. um, to inappropriate texts, um, being groped. And then as in the news lately, more serious um, allegations of, you know, sexual assault and, and rape even. Um, so it's, yeah, it's quite a, it can be quite uh, awful to be a woman in politics sometimes. You, you you managed to maintain, I mean, this could just be a very good veneer on Twitter, but you managed to maintain what seems like a very upbeat disposition. But whenever you discuss <laughs> this, it just sounds so horrific. I sort of wonder how anyone gets through it. Yeah, it's, um, well, I don't know, I guess, I guess I'm really lucky because I've, I'm in a position where my boss really supports me and, you know, he lets me gob off and he you know, <laughs> lets me kind of campaign and complain and um, sometimes put him in really tough positions, which I'm so sorry for, Clive, if you <laughs> listen to this. Um, but, but, you know, he, he pushes me. And so um, I'm able to talk about these things. I have a platform um, and I have the profile now that actually, even though it is quite a difficult thing to talk about sometimes, um, it's worth it, I guess. And um, not everyone um is afford is afforded that privilege in West and especially in Westminster you know speaking out about sexual harassment and bullying in parliament isn't your usual kind of you know complaining about your boss you're complaining about the people who are at least perceived to be the most powerful people in the country mm. and so it's um yeah it's a it's an interesting place to be gobby it's just, I mean it's hard to sort of Describe sometimes people you know when you go into Westminster there is even if you're quite critical of it it's quite hard to not have a bit of a sense of awe about the place just the history mm. and the power around it and so even just culturally quite apart from any of the structures that often mitigates against being too outspoken yeah and you kind of there is this kind of um culture where you you're kind of um, expected to be really appreciative of the fact that you're even there. You know, you're so lucky to be in Parliament and you're so lucky to work for MPs or you're so lucky to be a lobby journalist or whatever it is you do that um, that's often kind of shoved in your face and it's used um, to stop people from speaking out, which sucks. When you've written some of the features that you do and some of the campaigning that you do on this issue, do you, do you have a sort of moment where you think, you know, is this going to affect my career? Am I basically burning down my own career here? Oh, my God. All the time. <laughs> Every single time. Uh, I always push through with it. But, oh, my God, it's not easy at all. And I think that's one of the um, misconceptions people can sometimes have when you, you, know, you end up with a profile and you win an award maybe or you, I don't know, get a certain amount of likes or retweets or something or whatever or you're praised when something does go well but the mm. process up until that point is it's a horrific it's horrible like you know I'm, I'm human like everyone else and um and I have bills to pay too like you know speaking out about something or tweeting about something that no one else will speak about in politics I'm not going to pay my rent but a lot of the time it's or every single time it, it is worth it yeah I have been really worried that I've you know pissed off the wrong people um I've had people complain about my tweets before or my articles um and yeah I've even had people send my <laughs> send my tweets to my boss and my tweets to the charity that I'm on a board of and, and, and all of these kinds of things um mm. but it's just part of the um part of the process really if you're speaking out against very powerful 
people and a powerful institution. What is, um, if we were to put sort of all of the cultural sort of disparagements and all of that to one side, and we just mm. think like in terms of the formal system, if, you know, once everything returns to normal coronavirus is over, a young woman's at a drinks reception and she feels that she's been treated badly, she's been groped or something. What is the process that at that point she should go through? What, what is the system? Where should she complain? And how does it tend to work? Well, now um, we have the independent uh, complaints process, which we didn't have before. Um, we, we didn't have any kind of complaints process. Um, so that is the the route that you would be encouraged to to go through where um it's now fully independent so i think um they're currently recruiting the panel that are going to sit on this independent complaints process um like that that would be the way that you're kind of told you should complain and proceed with holding someone accountable for something they may have done to you but um other than that there, there really isn't that much support or um, there aren't really that many channels for people to complain um, or raise things through like every single political party. And I, and I say that about Labour as well. Like we are dismal um, when it comes to supporting victims and, and women in politics. We're, it's 2020. It's been how long since the Me Too movement kind of hit politics and yet still um, alleged victims aren't supported by you know, the official systems. So... We've, we've moved forward towards um, having formal structures, but we've got a long way to go. Um, and you talked about uh, bullying being uh, sort of similar, but sort of distinct. Can you, mm. can you talk a bit, especially about the culture in which people work? Because it seems as if, I think for a lot of people outside, they sort of assume people are sort of working for one of the political parties or in parliament. But in fact, that they're sort of in a, a very small business, which is the MP's office. Yeah, that's the that's one of the things that um yeah, like you know, my friends and family they don't understand that. Um if you're a staffer in Westminster, most of the time you're working for one MP, you're working in a very small office, and it may only be just you there during Westminster sitting times, mm. um or with a few other people. Um so you end up in this kind of like really close um relationship with the politician you work for, which sometimes ends up being one where they take advantage of you and exploit you because of again like we said earlier Westminster's you know perceived to be this place where you should be so happy that you're here and oh my god you work in Westminster like mm. you know take all the shit that's thrown at you like because you work there um, and so the bullying um it's a breeding ground for it because um no one really sees what happens in these offices. No one really sees what happens in, on these email chains or the texts or when the calls are coming through on a Saturday evening and you're being asked to do something for, you know, a Sunday morning when and being threatened if you don't, um, threatened with your job and, and all this kind of stuff. It, um, it, it's so crazy because I just think of all the different times I've had these discussions with staff or friends of mine. And, and it's not just women, it's men. It's men just as much of the time, really, when it comes to bullying. Um mm. And it is just so widespread and so kind of hidden um, that I, I think sometimes when I try and speak about it, I, I just forget. And I, because I'm so used to it, I'm so used to, um, you know, going for coffees with friends and then being like, oh, yeah, um, my MPs just um, told me I'm a shit writer or, or, you know, something like that. And it's just it's just so normal. It is part of it 
cultural as well. Like the, it, it, this seems like such pop psychology, but like, it, you know, the, the adversarial nature of the commons and, you know, the, the fact that it's still mm-hmm. a weirdly informal structure and these are very high stress sort of conflictual situations people find themselves in. Is that part of it or is it just the fact that, you know, ultimately you can get away with it because it's just basically a, a mini SME and so they just, they do it? Yeah, I think I, th- I think politics is always going to be a place where it's where it's like, you know, if you can't handle the heat, get out of the kitchen kind of thing. It's always going to be a stressful environment. It's always going to be somewhere where there are high stakes and you know, high pressure. Like that is just the nature of politics, no, ma- no matter what, no matter where you are. But um, it's when it crosses that line into people realising or thinking that they are uh, so powerful that they um, don't have to be held accountable for how they treat people who are more junior to them and then exploit that. And I think because Westminster has this um, kind of secret kind of culture where, you know, there are whisper networks where women speak to one another, but nothing really gets spoken about publicly and um you know it's this exclusive place that actually you do end up with um senior people and politicians just kind of doing what they want because they they do think they can get away with it um but then with that now that we have the independent complaints process I wonder how much that will change um and because there have been high profile cases this year for example Charlie Elphick and with the case of the MP being arrested I think that will hopefully serve as a bit of a reminder mm. um, that you can't get away with, you know, doing whatever you want. You, you mentioned the Whisper Network. You've written about this before, the, the sort of the manner in which lots of, especially women in Westminster, you know, WhatsApp groups and informal conversations warning each other about potential guys and where not to go and et cetera. Is that a useful mechanism um, for dealing with? I mean, it's obviously not where, where you want to be in terms of a system for dealing with this stuff, but... But as this culture has been there, has that has that been one of the the mechanisms that women have used in order to keep themselves safe? Oh yeah, definitely. Like ideally, you don't want to be in a place where you need whisper networks, right? Like you don't mm. want to have to meet friends in bathrooms or in corners of one of the bars, and you know, say, "Oh, I'd avoid so and so if I were you," kind of thing. But they they serve a purpose right now because until we have, you know, a a place that is safe and structures that we can rely on to protect ourselves, protect women and one another and, and whatever else. Um, whisper, ne- whisper networks will be the core of how women survive in politics. Um, they're like my whisper networks and, you know, my friendships with women across political parties over the last few years have been what's gotten me through. Um, and if I didn't have them and if I didn't have my occasional, you know, cries in the um, photocopy room or, wherever else in one of the many bathrooms um I would have left politics so whilst they're not ideal they um yeah they are very useful are you overall a bit optimistic about where things are getting it does feel like there's more conversation around these issues certainly than there was five years ago and arguably than there was you know even two years ago or are you quite sort of cautious about feeling too chuffed I'm more optimistic than I was now that we have the independent complaints process because we needed that structural change. Um, but at the same time, I'm extremely cautious because I know that this kind of the cultural change that's required in Westminster will take a very long time. And, you know, as with most people, change is difficult. But with 
with Westminster, where you're dealing with the most powerful people in the most powerful institution in the country, change is going to take some time. Um, I, th- I think we're moving there very slowly, not at the pace I would like it to be, but um, it wouldn't be right to say we haven't moved forward at all. Yeah. So I kind of go through phases where sometimes I'm like, yes, we're making change. And then other times I'm like, what the bloody hell is going on? Like, why is this still happening? Yeah, it's a roller coaster. Today, I've caught you on like a half optimistic, half pessimistic mood. I know. Very, very balanced. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't sound like me at all. <laughs> Tara, thank you very much. No, not at all. And I'll send you the video of the spicy brie tasting contest. You'll love that. <laughs> that actually does sound like a great way for me to spend the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> thank you very much. That is your Bunker Daily. We will be back on Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays and Fridays and with a full length show on Wednesdays. Cheerio. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ian Dunn and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold and audio production was from me, Robin Leader. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.